Hello, everyone. Welcome to Solidarity Is This. I'm your host, Deepa Iyer, and I'm so excited that you're joining me for the May episode of our podcast. This podcast explores solidarity practices and messages and talks to activists all around the country who are exploring what it means to be in transformative solidarity with each other. You can subscribe to the podcast via iTunes. You can also find past episodes there. And you can download the Solidarity Syllabus at www.solidarityis.org, which contains information and resources for each episode. May is one of my favorite months, and it also happens to be Asian Pacific Heritage Month. Did you know that Asian Americans are the fastest growing race group in the United States? Now, while the myth of Asian Americans being the model minority persists, you know, the one that says that we're all spelling bee champions or math whizzes or Silicon Valley entrepreneurs, still, we are an incredibly diverse community, socioeconomically, linguistically, and in so many other ways. The Asian American Pacific Islander moniker is a constructed identity. It's a political identity that really enables our communities to come together with a united voice on issues of concern to all of us, from health to immigration to housing. And it is from that vantage point that I am excited this month to welcome Alice Wong to Solidarity Is This. Alice is a disability activist. She is the founder and director of the Disability Visibility Project, a community partnership with StoryCorps, and an online community dedicated to recording, amplifying, and sharing disability stories and culture. She created it in 2014. Alice is also a co-partner in two other projects, DisabledWriters.com, which is a resource to help editors connect with disabled writers and journalists, and hashtag CripTheVote, a nonpartisan online movement encouraging the political participation of disabled people. Alice, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Deepa. So Alice, tell me a little bit about what got you into your work to promote disability rights. You know, it took me a long time thinking of myself as an activist. You know, in a lot of ways, I couldn't help becoming one because the society that I live in is hostile and, you know, inaccessible to me because of who I am. And at first, it was just about advocating for myself. But as I grew up, I became more politicized. You know, I realized systemic and institutional change is the only way to move all of us forward. And else, if you don't mind, can you share a little bit about your own personal story? I'm a daughter of immigrants. My mom and dad moved from Hong Kong to of all places, to Indianapolis, Indiana, to the 1970s. <laughs> so I'm one of those rare, you know, Asian-American Midwesterners. We do exist. We're everywhere. We're just not always, like, you know, everybody thinks about East Coast and West Coast, but there are, you know, Hoosier Asian-Americans. So I was mm-hmm. born and raised in a very, you know, suburban, very... You know, not the first very much. You know, I was always in the room as a kid, as either the only Asian American kid, or definitely the only disabled kid in a wheelchair. And very often, I never saw anybody that looked like myself for mm-hmm. years. And that really made me feel lonely. And uh, if you want to know more details, I guess I'm 
Doctor also shared that I have a neuromuscular disability, which means that you know all of my muscles are affected. So it's progressive. Yeah. When I was younger, I could walk, but I started needing to use a walker as a child. Then I started using a wheelchair, and you know this is just the way my body is. It is going to be a it's been a process of adaptation, and I think you know a lot of people mm-hmm. don't realize that. Um, you know, disabled people are pretty savvy. They really know how to adapt and innovate and, you know, really uh, hack their way to, to living. I know I've been lucky and fortunate to have met you and become friends with you, and you're just a force of nature. And I was not surprised at all when, in, I think, 2014, you started this project called Disability Visibility, which, for folks who might be interested, you can learn more at www.disabilityvisibilityproject.com. So Alice, can you tell us a little bit about why you started this project and what have been some of the, you know, really great aspects of it that have been meaningful for you and for others as well? The Disability Visibility Project is made up of roughly two parts. First, it's a community partnership with StoryCorps. StoryCorps is a national oral history nonprofit. And as a community partner, I encourage people with disabilities across the country to record their stories at StoryCorps. They have two locations at Atlanta and Chicago. And there's also an office smartphone. So anybody can tell their story and it'll be uploaded into the cloud and also archived at the Library of Congress. And that to me is the brilliant thing that we all have the capacity to create our own history. We don't have to wait around for some historian to find this interesting to tell our stories. That's really empowering. And that's something that I think we, all of us, can really use. And the DVP is also an online community that creates, shares, it amplifies disability media culture. And I do this by doing Twitter chats and having a Facebook group and a podcast and also collaborations with other activists. And the reason why I did this is because, you know, frankly, our stories are not told by mainstream media. And when they are told, they often don't center disabled people. Deepa, you would not believe the number of times, you know, there'll be a story about a disabled person, but they'll interview, like, the family member or somebody else. And it's very much worse. Like, it's often told by non-disabled people on behalf of non-disabled people. And there's also the practice of stories where disability identities of people are erased. For example, you know, Harriet Tuppet had a disability, epilepsy, and Fanny Lou Haber, incredibly important civil rights activist, had polio. But that's something that's usually not mentioned in the civil rights and black history that you should read about. Their disabilities are not part of who they are in their biography. And I think that's you know, something that's problematic. 
And I think that's something that we hear a lot on Solidarity is this, where people talk a lot about the fact that their identities and histories and stories and narratives are often erased or told about them and the importance of actually creating your own stories and narratives, right? And so can you share a little bit about some of the stories that you are collecting and archiving perhaps through the podcast or other components of disability visibility that are really, as you said, creating the identities for disabled persons and the issues and needs that folks are dealing with? You know, I really loved recently, uh, I got to interview two Asian American women about mental health, and I got to interview two really dynamic and active disabled women. Their names are Emily Wu Chua and Jessica Shimano. And, you know, they basically share their story about their experiences with mental illness and also relationship between, you know, Asian American culture, their culture, their families, their understandings of mental illness. And you really see these kinds of stories out there, I think we need more kind of like, but there are stories about, let's say, for example, mental illness or disability or mm-hmm. any kind of chronic illness. Most of the representation is very white. And uh, one of my friends, Violissa K. Thompson, she actually started a hashtag called Disability to White, and that's Something that really drives me as well in what I do because our disability community is so diverse and I really want to highlight the full, you know, range of our stories and of our community. And that's one of the things that I also have found, you know, that the disability rights community, first of all, is very active online. So it'd be great to hear whom you follow and learn from that we all could, but also the real point that I think that the community often makes about increasing awareness of intersectionality. Can you talk a little bit about what you've learned and why that's so important? You know, within the United States, there's, you know, one in five Americans with a disability. So we are everywhere. And whether people realize it or not, whether people identify or not, we are always present in every person's community. And there are some issues, I think, that are, you know, really important to start talking about intersectionality. For example, that I think intersectionality is so important when it comes to building solidarity with various marginalized communities. And, you know, for example, there's... Uh, police violence and brutality because, you know, disproportionate numbers of black and brown disabled people are being killed or harmed or oftentimes incarcerated without medication or treatment or even access to communication. And there are many people on death row with intellectual disabilities or other mental health disabilities who are also convicted. And these are issues that a lot of people care about in terms of mass incarceration and police brutality that we can all try to be in solidarity with one another and really try to tackle these these issues. 
you talked a little bit about the enforcement state and, you know, mass incarceration, police brutality, detentions, deportations, how these affect people who are disabled. And then there are, of course, other issues like getting paid fairly or utilizing public transit that also affect people's lives, right? What are some of the best practices you've seen when it comes to actually addressing this intersectionality and being in solidarity with each other? I think it starts with, I think, be honest with what you don't know. And be honest about, you know, wanting to reach out. And be willing to be vulnerable about it. You know, I am constantly trying to learn as well. I've got, I've got my own work to do. I think it starts with that kind of recognition. And I think some humility as well. I think a lot of us get siloed into our different spaces that we're a part of. And I think part of it is just being willing to push each other to make these kind of connections. And I think being honest about our interest and also our willingness to listen and also to do the work. I think that's, I think, a really an important part of building solidarity because it goes both ways. But it's really, you know, a shared experience and also a shared responsibility. And you've definitely given us, I think, some food for thought, being vulnerable, being clear about what you don't know, and also being open to work out of the silos that we're always placed in. You know, like these are issues that affect folks with disabilities, and these are issues that affect immigrants. And so we're constantly, I think, uh, siloed from each other, which is one of the reasons that solidarity is so important to build that line and that connection. So if you, I guess, were to tell us, and there are a lot of activists who are listening to Solidarity is This, what are you know some of the steps that you would suggest that activists take as they're designing a campaign on equity issues in their community? What are ways in which they can actually make sure that they're including and amplifying people who have disabilities, people who are working on these issues from that vantage point? What are some steps that you tell us to take? I really encourage everyone who's listening is to learn about ableism. Ableism is something that I think is a term that still a lot of people know a much about, even though we do all the many other forms of oppression. You know, ableism is very mm-hmm. it's very invisible, it's very sneaky. It's sneaky, it's everywhere. But I really do encourage people to uh, explore what ableism is and perhaps if they have time to really confront and reflect on their own implicit bias about disability. I think you know, disability for a lot of people is a scary thing. You know, a lot of people are very uncomfortable about thinking about disability and talking to people with disabilities. And I think part of it is just it reminds people of how how fragile we all are, right? And I think that that's the thing that we all have to realize that we're all interdependent on one another and that Somebody who moves a different way, somebody who, who sounds like me, because right now, I, you know, for the listeners, I sound different because I'm using a ventilator to help me breathe, because I have a bathroom in my nose, so my voice 
it sounds a little different. And I know that people, when they first see me, you know, they have perceptions about me. And I think, you know, I would really encourage people to think about ableism and also to think about disability as a cultural and political identity, just as much as people have pride in being a Muslim, being Asian American, being LGBTQ. There are people like me who are very proud of being disabled and because I come from a community with a really long history of activism and you know, just uh, we have a history, we have a culture. And I think I would that would be kind of my my two suggestions. I think those are really helpful ones and you saying at the beginning about how ableism is another form of oppression is something that I think that, um, you know, I want to think about more and learn about more. And I think that all of us need to, because I think that that's one of those biases, right, that we don't necessarily acknowledge and that leads into or feeds into or informs even not just the way we treat each other, but our movement work and our solidarity practices as well. So thank you for laying some of that out through that analysis. So you talked a little bit already a number of times, right? You've mentioned, and this podcast is actually going to be up in May, which is also Asian American Heritage Month. You mentioned your identity as an Asian American person. And so I was curious to hear a little bit about what are some of the ways in which you think that Asian Americans can amplify the concerns and increase the visibility of Asian Americans who are disabled like yourself and many others? Because I don't think that that oftentimes at least from my vantage point, doesn't actually come into the conversations or the advocacy or the campaigns when we think about issues affecting Asian Americans today. It's on all of us to kind of name it and identify it and say that we care about people with disabilities within our community. So I think there are a lot of people who are Asian American who have a chronic illness, who have you know, a disability, whether it's visible or invisible, but they don't identify because, you know, they're not comfortable. They're not, they're afraid of being seen less than. And I think that, you know, things like the model minority is a huge aspect Mm -hmm. of this, kind of, you know, intertwined and interrelated because, you know, we always have to kind of be strong or, you know, somehow uphold some sort of image. I think there's a lot of fear mm-hmm. and stigma and silence that still exists within Asian American communities about disability. Yeah. And I think the silence is the most, I think, harmful thing about that aspect. I really feel like if you're not disabled and Asian American, I want you all to kind of speak up and say, oh, what about the disabled people? You know, like, to talk about it. Because I think that gives... As people are more open to talking about it, that gives permission to other people to feel like they can disclose. And I think there are still a lot of people within the Asian American community that are hiding because they just don't know if they're going to be accepted. People just want to feel like they will be welcomed. And I think that's all. You know, that's what it means to be an ally and a accomplice is to really do that kind of work, that kind of, kind of preemptive mm-hmm. work to say, you are welcome, you are valued. 
And I think you're so right to connect it to that sense of the model minority, because there's so much silence, which leads to shame and the sense of taboo that people are not living up to a particular standard, right? I think it's more of the reason that we need to really dismantle that myth altogether. And as you said, have the conversations within our own communities to make sure that we're not excluding people and making them feel ashamed about who they are and instead making them feel proud and empowered about who they are. So thank you for making those links. You know, one of the stories that I've heard from somebody is that, you know, I deal with Asian Americans with, like, you know, learning disabilities who, because of the model minority myths, they were so reluctant to say that Mm -hmm. they had a learning disability because it goes against all those horrible stereotypes that you have to be, like, smart at and a great test taker and all that, all that bullshit. And that Mm -hmm. has led to people getting delayed services, getting delayed help, or even being able to tell their family members about it. So there's a lot of people struggling silently. You know, it drives me to do what I want to do what I do because it really feels so wrong. And that's why projects like yours are so important. And as we close up, Alice, I want to ask you if you can tell us either, you know, something that we need to be aware of as solidarity activists that, you know, is either an advocacy goal or campaign that we should be aware of, or if there's a resource that you think that we should be aware of to begin some of these conversations, these important conversations around ableism and around really intersectionality and visibility so the ADA Education Reform Act of 2017 is, it passed in the House recently, which is horrible and very sad. The ADA Education Reform Act is basically a law that's going to weaken the Americans with Disabilities Act. And the Americans with Disabilities Act that was passed almost 28 years ago is basically our civil rights bill. Yeah, it basically right. says that we belong in society, we have protections and we're discriminated against, and that we have expectations to have access in public spaces. And right now, this bill will put the burden on disabled people to create access and change. It's really going to allow businesses to take their time and not even comply with this law that's been in effect for over, you know, 20 years. So this is incredibly dangerous because it sends a chilly message to a huge community that basically it just says, you don't matter. And, you know, this accessibility and disability rights, it impacts all of us because we're all interconnected and we all have a loved one or somebody that's going to be impacted by disability. Whether it's mm-hmm. still getting older or just somebody that you know, like your date or your friend. So it's really what group hurts all of us, all groups. So I would like everybody mm-hmm. today who's listening to this podcast to email or control your senator and say, vote no on the ADA Education Reform Act. And just make sure mm-hmm. that your elected officials hear from their constituents. And tell them that disability rights 
is civil rights, is human rights, and disability justice is social justice. And for those of us who work in civil rights spaces or racial justice spaces, we need to be aware of all that you talked about, you know, the cultural interventions, the ways in which we recognize our own privileges, and the ways in which we are using intersectional language and lifting up voices like yours. We need to know all of that, incorporate all of that, but we also need to be able to identify these sorts of threats that are coming down the pike. Um, And we'll have more information about the ADA Education and Reform Act of 2017 in the solidarity syllabus for this episode so people can learn a little bit more about what it is trying to do and how we can stop it. So thank you so much, Alice, for being on Solidarity Is This. It was so wonderful to talk to you and to learn from you. And I know that your podcast is something that all of us can learn from as well. And that is that available at disabilityvisibilityproject.com? It sure is. It is also available at iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Great. So hopefully people will download that podcast right away and learn more about the work that you're doing. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Oh, thank you, Ava. It's been a pleasure. Please learn more about Alice's work at www.disabilityvisibilityproject.com. As we end this podcast, I'm actually reflecting on an event I attended last month at the Japanese American Memorial in Washington, D.C. If you haven't visited this memorial, please go. It holds a really poignant and meaningful space in my own heart because I have visited that memorial many, many times, especially in the years after the 9-11 attacks. In fact, just about a week after the 9-11 attacks, many of us gathered at the Japanese American Memorial to send a message to the country that we must not repeat the same mistakes we made during World War II when this government took over 120,000 people of Japanese descent and confined them in camps in the interior of this country, detained them because they were seen as threats to America's national security. If you visit this memorial, you'll find the names of people who were incarcerated, as well as the names of some of the sites of incarceration, places like Manzanar in California, or Tule Lake, also in California, places like Topaz in Utah, and Heart Mountain in Wyoming. Now, these sites have always been preserved by the federal government, but they're often under threat for losing funding, as they were this year when Trump's budget called for the elimination of the Japanese American Confinement Sites Grants Program. Visit the sites, advocate for their funding and preservation, because we cannot lose the stories and places that remind us of what discrimination and exclusion can do. I urge you to take a look at www.densho.org, which preserves the past for the generations of tomorrow. You'll learn about the redress movement, an effort that led to the passage of the Civil Liberties Act of 1988, a presidential apology, and payments to surviving former detainees. You'll learn about these sites of shame that I just talked about. And you'll learn about how people litigated the heinous governmental decision people like Min Yasui, Gordon Hirabayashi, and Fred Korematsu. And you'll be able to read about the experiences of families who were incarcerated. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Solidarity Is This during May, Asian Pacific American Heritage Month. I look forward to talking with all of you next month on Solidarity Is This. <laughs>